Good morning. So I wonder how many of you have the uh, dollar bill that is still burning a hole in your pocket. Still here. Okay. Well, you don't have to put a hand up. It's okay. Uh, I, I hope you're still thinking about it. I know that some, uh, some of you who weren't here don't know what I'm talking about, but a few weeks ago, people came to church and actually received money instead of giving money. And uh, the idea was to think about what you could do with this um, that would have a, an impact in another's life. And uh, I've actually had several reports. I'll try not to embarrass uh, anybody, but uh, one of the first people I heard from was David, and uh, he'll remain nameless. <laughs> and he went, he works at the ice creamery, and he was going, oh, what am I going to do with this dollar? What will a dollar buy? And uh, they never get homeless people in the ice creamery because it's just too expensive. But a, a homeless person came into the ice creamery that night, that Sunday, and he was a man who had apparently lived on the street, was in a very nice shirt, but it was very filthy, hadn't washed for some time. And, and the man went to the counter and he bought himself a cup of coffee, but he was obviously very hungry. And uh, David was moved to, to say, you know what, hey, can I, uh, can I buy you a cup of soup? And the man says, I, I, don't, I don't need soup, I don't, I don't need your money. And he obviously did, but he didn't want to take it. And uh, David said, no, really, let me, let me buy you some soup. But you can't buy soup for a dollar at the ice creamery. I don't know if you've seen their prices, but, man, they're outrageous. Sorry, David. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the uh, waitresses, I guess, uh, had also been moved with compassion towards the same man and said, hey, why don't we share the cost of this? And there was enough money to buy the soup with the man, and he galloped it down in a hurry, and that's how he used his money. It made a difference in this man's life uh, for that day anyway. I know um, that I received an email from you this week, and uh, Jaya, who uh, was moved to reach out. I hope I'm not embarrassing you. If I am, I apologize. I didn't even ask you ahead of time. But she wrote to me and said that she had a friend that uh, she had offered prayer for because she had gone through some uh, serious uh, illness with cancer and uh, that even in saying, look, I'll pray for you, it, it still, the Lord burdened her heart that, it, that she needed to do more, that she needed to really reach out to her friend and tell her about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so she was able this week to send her a package uh, with gospel in it and um, the cost was less than a dollar, she said. And so it was something that she was able to do to reach out to a friend and begin to pray uh, more, more effectively for her. Uh, there's a gal that comes here, has been coming here for a little while. Her name is Jen. And uh, Jen, I don't know if you're able to put Jen's picture up on, online or not. Uh, Luke, are you? Anyway, Jen, uh, you'll see her picture in a minute, I think. She uh, decided, what, what am I going to do with a dollar? What can a dollar buy? I mean, it, it can barely buy anything today. And she thought, you know, I need to reach out. And what really moved her was the fact that she herself would be changed if she used her dollar to reach out to somebody else. 
And so she took her dollar, and there she is, and she posted this on Facebook with this sign, what could you do with the dollar? And uh, I can forward you her link later if you want to. Um, but she wrote a long, long thing about uh, what she thought about and what she could do. She says, you know, usually I write uh, notes furiously at, at church so I can remember, you know, what was said, and then I get home and I can't remember half of what I, what I heard. But she said, this week, this message has just been burning in my soul, and I've got to tell somebody. So she told her friends the gospel. And she, I don't know how many hundreds of friends she has, but I'm sure it's quite a few hundred, five, over 500. Okay, she's got a lot more friends than I do. And uh, she uh, told them the gospel and encouraged them to trust in the Lord. But she ultimately said, you know, maybe it's not really about the dollar. Maybe the message really wasn't about that. Maybe the message was really about how it could change me and how I could live for the Lord. And that's really the point. I said, man, you nailed it. I said, you know, praise the Lord. That's really the point of it. How we can use the resources that God has given to us to be more effective in reaching out to our friends and our community uh, with the gospel. So Michael, Michael, raise your hand. How many people know Michael? Okay, Michael <clears throat> just took this to the nth degree, and we have a little video that he put together. Um, I'm thankful that Tom is not here because he did some illegal things. <laughs> But I want you to take a look at this. Okay, so I just left Calvary Church and we've been challenged to take one dollar and do something profound with it. And the Spirit has moved me to do something a little bit different. Or I don't know if it's been done yet, but um, I have an idea. Oh, and yes, I am driving, but it's okay because I'm on the freeway. Both under influence 
driving when I'm talking, uh, but it was a red light, so that was, uh, technically that was legal. car again but this time I'm not moving so no laws being broken but I did uh, pick up a $20 gift card to Ross and I plan on using this to um, go buy some socks for some homeless people okay thank you yeah thank you I've got a gift card so I just got a whole bag of socks and going to bring this to Craig, who's part of a um, street evangelism program that helps out homeless people, and I think you'll make them happy. Yeah, every little bit counts, right? So it's getting close to the deadline, and bumped into this uh, Christian sister at um, Ross, and she was like, oh, you're buying all these socks, and I'm like, yeah, and kind of told her what I was doing and she digged in her purse and pulled out two Starbucks cards to give me uh, one of them's got like 750 on it the other one's got like a couple of bucks but either way we'll just kind of like throw it into the pile and um, it'll go to somebody has the word final basically on the end of it. I don't think it's over yet. <laughs> but I think the uh, lady at Ross that, that uh, helped you, I mean actually I think you encouraged her in her walk with the Lord as well, which really ultimately is better than all the gifts. And so, you know, I just want to encourage you, if that dollar is burning a hole in your pocket, there's people in need, okay? Think about it, pray about how the Lord would have you use that. Well, we're in uh, Luke chapter 17. I, I'm really thrilled. I'll just tell you this. I'm really thrilled <clears throat> when I preach a message and people take it to heart and they do something with it. 
and they, they really go to town on it. And I really appreciate all of you for your prayers and for the, the uh, work that you're doing behind the scenes. Some years ago, uh, a man named Steve Green <clears throat> wrote a song and sang it, and it's called Find Us Faithful. We're going to look at the words of that at the very end. But um, I want to borrow that title this morning for my message and, and pose it as a question uh, for our sermon this morning. Will the Lord find us faithful? That's really what the subject matter is about in this uh, passage. And um, we noted in the past that when you come to the Scripture, always look at the audience that Jesus is speaking to. And so two weeks ago, he was talking to the disciples. That's where the dollar thing came in. Last week, he was primarily talking to the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious rulers of the day. And then today, his attention turns back to the disciples. We could say his attention is back on us and how we might live uh, for him. And so the questions are really to do with how we should interact with other people and how we should serve the Lord. And uh, the subject this morning really has a lot to do with our character, our character among other people, and our character before the Lord. So let's take a look, uh, Luke 17. I'm not going to read the whole passage this morning like we normally do. I'm going to just take a few verses, we'll comment on them, and then we'll read another few verses and, and go that way this morning. So the first point I want to make is found in verses 1 and 2. Um, a faithful disciple does not offend. So <clears throat> the Lord Jesus is speaking, and he said to his disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. There are very few things in Scripture that are spoken of and are said to be impossible, but here's one of them. It is impossible that no offenses should come. Um, the Greek word for offenses is the word Scandalon. I'm going to say it slowly. Scandal on. What does it sound like to you? It sounds like a great big scandal. Okay? That's exactly where we get our word scandal from. The word actually, the word scandalon in Greek actually refers to a part of a trap that you set. So it's, it's the piece of the trap that is set with bait. And so most of you are familiar with the mousetrap, right? those little contraptions, and you take a little bit of cheese or a little bit of peanut butter or something that a mouse would like, and you put it on that little part that the, is a little flippy part. That's the scandal on, okay? And then you set the trap. And the idea of setting a trap with cheese or peanut butter or something delightful to a mouse is that you're going to attract that little critter. And that little mouse is going to come up and sniff the food, and it's going to take a little nibble of it. It's going to move that scandal on just enough that, wham, it's dead. It's gone. And that's the whole idea of this word, scandal on. It's an offense. It's what happens when uh, we set a trap for a mouse. But the scriptures speak of people who are enticing others to sin, they are creating a scandal. They set traps in the naive or the simple 
uh, and the sinners are enticed. In Proverbs 1.10, it says this, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Do not consent. There was a saying years ago, I think they probably still go, in fact, Dorothy, I think you were part of that uh, program that went into the schools and you would teach um, uh, about you know, staying away from drugs. And the, and the, the uh, words that they used were what? Just say no, okay? That's what this is saying. When sinners entice you, when they set the bait on the scandal on, when they set the bait on the trap, and they want to entice you to sin, just say no. That's it. And so the uh, sinners are going to try to bring you down. Watch out, Jesus is saying here, for men and women who are trying to destroy men's souls and lead people to hell. Well, it's interesting that Jesus has just been speaking about hell. Last chapter, last week, we were looking at hell. And I believe that the context of this passage has a lot to do with what he just finished saying. On his heart, here is God in the flesh, and he's thinking about the horrors of hell and those who are in hell, and his heart is broken by all of those who are there because they did not believe the gospel. And he must think through Why are they there? Why is this person there? Why is that person there? Why is he there? Why is she there in hell? Because all of us ultimately make a choice. But some are there because they were deceived. Some are there because of a scandal. Some are there because somebody trapped them into believing falsely. And they'll end up in hell. Hell is real. The fire is real and the torment is real and it never, never ends and it must break the heart of the Lord to think of all of those who are in hell. The bait is set and we don't realize that taking of the bait will lead us to hell. That's exactly what it does. Jesus looks at for a moment at those who are responsible for leading so many people astray and are guilty of deceiving others so that they fall victim of their traps And he says here, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. Well, who are these evil people who would lead others to hell? Proverbs chapter 2, verse 12 says this, that the word of God is able to deliver us from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. The Bible also speaks about evil women. And he says that the word of God is able to deliver us from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her lips or her words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. It says in Proverbs 7 about her, Listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For she has cast down many wounded And all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell. It's very strong words. Descending to the chambers of death. Not only can men and women fall into moral traps, 
But perhaps the trap that has led more people to hell than any other is the trap set by men and women who stand behind pulpits just like this every Sunday morning. And there are people all across the world who today stood behind a pulpit and preached a gospel of works for salvation and said that the way to get to heaven is by being good. And they are leading countless millions of people to hell by that message. A preacher who tells you that salvation is earned by your own goodness or tells you that your uh, own righteousness will get you to heaven instead of telling you that you're a sinner and you need salvation and that salvation is only through the blood of Jesus Christ and Him alone, that preacher, that teacher is leading you to hell. It's that simple. Paul uh, reserved his greatest condemnation uh, to, for those who preached that kind of a message. And he said to the church at Galatia, in uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, he said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. That is, that we get to heaven not on our own works, but by his undeserved favor. To a different gospel, he says, which is not another, but there are those who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so we say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. There is no greater condemnation in Scripture. The word that is used here for accursed is the word anathema. And really what it means is let them uh, be uh, separated from God for eternity. Anathema maranatha. It basically means let them be in hell eternally. May the Lord come back quickly. That's what it means. Very, very strong words in the Scripture here. Why is it so strong? And why does the Lord make such a point of this in this passage? It's because these false teachers are corrupting the gospel of grace. And they are preaching a message that will lead people to hell. It's a trap. And he sees that they have set this trap and that people are nibbling on this and that if they take the bait, they're lost for eternity. It's serious business. It's deadly serious. It's a scandal. Jesus says we can count on these kinds of scandals to take place, to arise. But don't you be counted among those who cause a scandal. The worst scandal ever is that someone would end up in hell because of our words or because of our actions. Serious, serious business. In fact, it's so serious that Jesus said in this passage, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. A millstone. We don't talk about millstones very much. But a millstone in those days was a great big stone. It was round and it was tied to a post or a pole and the pole was attached to an ox. And as the ox moved in a circle, 
around over and over again, the, the stone would roll, and they would throw grain underneath it, and, and that heavy, heavy stone would crush the grain and basically turn it into uh, flour uh, for baking. And the Lord is saying this, it would be better that if a person is preaching a false gospel or is leading people astray in any way, it would be better if they wore a necklace of a millstone and that they were thrown into the depths of the sea and that they perished forever than to cause a little one to stumble. As disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be careful that we are not the cause of someone rejecting the gospel, the cause of a brother giving up in discouragement. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 14, So then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. And so a faithful disciple will not do anything that causes a little one to stumble. I was thinking about um, something else this morning. We just had a class on temptation um, in the earlier session here. And I was reminded of a passage. I hope I can uh, turn to it quickly. I believe it's in Mark. Yeah, it is. Not only can others cause us to stumble or cause other people to stumble, but you know, sometimes the enemy is within our own flesh. And that's what we talked about in the uh, lesson this morning in, in the BCT class. But I was thinking about that, and the Lord even has something to say about this as well in Mark chapter 9. He says, listen, even if your own hand causes you to sin, if your hand is causing the scandal in your own life, it would be better to chop your hand off and live, or not fall into sin as it were, uh, rather than go, um, let me read it to you. It says, if your hand causes you to sin, verse 43, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Do you really think that the Lord wants you to cut your hand off, to cut your foot off, or to pluck your eye out? If that's what it takes to keep you out of hell, it would be better, wouldn't it? He's talking about the seriousness, the seriousness of um, hellfires and what's to come. And it's so tragic when, when another person leads someone else to unbelief and they end up in hell. But imagine our own selves, deceiving ourselves that we would end up there as well. It's serious, serious business. So uh, the next section, a faithful disciple 
practices unlimited forgiveness. Verse 3, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day he returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Well, the subject obviously is forgiveness. The word for forgiveness means to cancel the debt, paid in full. Complete removal of the offense. Our forgiveness of other people should be a reflection of the forgiveness that God offers to us. The Bible tells us some remarkable things about our sins and what God has done with them. When we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe on Him for our salvation, He does a remarkable thing with our sins. He takes our sins and He buries them in the depths of the sea. Now, they say that the, is it the Muriana Trench? Am I saying that correctly? Is the deepest part of the sea? It's a place that we can't go. And our sins are buried so deep that we'll never, never find them. That's marvelous. I remember the time we had um, a sister. She had just come to know the Lord. Sandra Shorkin brought her over to my house. And she was still struggling about, uh, you know, I'm still struggling about my sins. And she knows that the Lord has forgiven her sins. But she says, I still feel like I have them. And I said, let me read something to you. And I told her about this remarkable verse that God has for us. And it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. I said, how far is the east from the west? And she looked at me and she said, I don't know. How far is it from Castro Valley to San Leandro? <laughs> I said, he's not talking about that distance. I said, if you were to go east in a straight line, actually, yeah, I'm east, that's east, right? If you were to go east in a straight line and you just kept going, when would it end? And she says, well, I suppose it never would end. And I said, and if you went west as far as the straight line of west went, I said, where would it end? And she says, I guess it doesn't end. And I said, that's the point. As far as the end of east is, which never ends, from the west, which never ends, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. Wonderful, wonderful news. Your sins, the Lord says, and iniquities, I will remember no more. Wow. God who knows everything. God who is omniscient forgets. He will not remember our sins and iniquities anymore. So why do we? I'll tell you something, brothers and sisters. We were not designed to carry a burden of guilt. And God has made a way for us to be free from this bondage. And for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are under a bondage of sin. And it is a burden of sin that is so heavy, it is weighing you down, you are trapped by it, and the Lord is offering you today forgiveness. 
cleansing of all your sins if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Freedom. That's what he's uh, offering you today. If we confess our sins, the Bible says, if we repent of them, we can be forgiven. I remember when I was a young Christian, I was less than a year old, and I was really struggling. I, you know, I'd been taught very clearly, very carefully, that I had been completely forgiven. Um, my sins before God were washed away as far as the east from the west, so far I removed my transgressions. From, I knew all those verses. And I thought, okay, before God, I'm forgiven. It's over. It's, it's, it's done. It's a done deal. I've been forgiven before the Lord, and my debt has been canceled. Yet the memory of the things that I had done burdened my heart, and they confused my mind, and they filled me with sorrow and guilt. I still felt the sting of my sins. And I was reading one day in Acts chapter 24 and verse 16, and it says this, Paul said, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. And the verse really struck me. And I thought, you know, I know that my relationship with God is right and that I've been forgiven by God. But I've never sought the forgiveness of those whom I sinned against. My offense before God was settled, but I had never settled my account with people that I had offended. And my conscience stung me because of it. And so one day, I, some of you know the story, I sat down and I took out a piece of paper and I began to write the names of people on this list. And there were girls and there were guys and there were employers and there were parents and there were friends and, and the list went on of all the people that I had sinned against that I could remember and the things that I had done. And uh, I thought, wow, <laughs> I've got my life work cut out for me here. But I thought, well, I'll start with the first one. And at the very top of my list was a department store that I had worked at called Woodward's. It was a store in Vancouver. And I had worked in one of the departments. And uh, it was my uh, high school job. And uh, I used to uh, work in the, in the gas station. They had a gas station there, which was actually separate from the department store. And uh, I used to pump gas. That was my job in the, uh, in the garage there. It was funny, coincidental, or whatever you want to call it. But the very last day that I worked there, Two great big burly guys came out into the, uh, into the place where I worked, into the, into the uh, garage building, and they said, Don Robertson, where is he? And I thought, whoa, whose boyfriends are these? <laughs> you know, and I thought, I, I certainly wasn't going to, you know, point to myself, and I went, <laughs> and of course, one of my coworkers goes, that's him right there pointed right at me. I said, oh, my goose is cooked. He's, and the next words out of their lips, they said, Mr. Paulson wants to see you right now. I thought, oh, no. I know who Mr. Paulson was. He was the head of security for the entire department store. And I thought, oh, man, I'm in trouble because I had been stealing from the store. In fact, all of us who worked there 
had been stealing from the store. And friends would come in and they would drive their cars into the gas station. And we'd pump gas and they'd go, 30 bucks please. And they'd go, hey, how's 10? Sure, we'll take it. Took 10 bucks. Went in, said 10 bucks. So there was a cashier who was separate. They didn't have electronics like they have today. And uh, so we just told her whatever the value was of the gas that we had just pumped. And she believed us, put it in, said, see a friend, you know. And I had been stealing from the store. And I knew that my goose was cooked. And so these two burly guys marched me all through the store, all the way up to Mr. Polson's office, sat me down in a chair and walked out. And I'm just sitting there sweating. Mr. Polson walks in. He had dates, times, amounts, everything. And I lied about every single one of them. And I got away with it. And I walked out of the store. They actually paid. It was my last day. I told you that, right? They kept me an hour over, and they paid me overtime for it. A crook. That was my last day. I quit. I went off and did other things. I had a life. And then two years later, I got saved. The Lord saved my soul. And this is the event. I'm sitting here writing. The first place on my list is Woodward Stores. And I've got to do something about this. And I said, Lord, why do you make things so difficult? And I went back and I went down to Woodward's store, went to his office, and he wasn't there. I said, Whew. <laughs> I tried, but I still had the guilt on my heart and my conscience. Finally, I got a hold of Mr. Polson, and I said, Mr. Polson, you probably don't remember me. An amazing change has taken place in my life since I last saw you. But I want to tell you something. You, you had me in your office two years ago, and you accused me of stealing from the store, and I want to tell you that everything you said was true. And I lied. And I told you I didn't do it. And I blamed other people. And I said, I want to tell you today that it was me. I was wrong. I did it. And I've come here today to ask you to forgive me. Will you forgive me? I tell you, eternity went by as I waited for an answer. He leaned back in his chair and he says, you went and got saved, didn't you? <laughs> and I started crying because I did not expect that answer. I thought I was going to hear the answer, you have a right to remain silent and, you know, put cuffs on me and take me to jail because that's what I deserved for what I had done. I was a thief. And uh, I thought I was going to be taken to jail. And I was ready for that. If that was what it was going to take to get this off my conscience, I was ready for that. And so he starts encouraging me in the Lord. And we're having this little Bible study. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, you still haven't answered my question. Will you forgive me for what I did? And he says, yes, we will forgive you for what you did. And I said, you know, I think there's something in the Bible about restitution. And I said, I think I need to pay back what I have owed, or what I took. And I said, I don't know what I stole. I really don't. I have no idea. And he says, well, write something down on a check and give it to us and we'll accept that. And he said, it's over. It's done. Paid in full. I said, wow. Top one on my list. I wrote the words. 
forgiven. <laughs> Great, forgiven. What wonderful words those are. I cannot tell you how freeing that is in a person's life. You know, as a lot of Christians carry around a burden of guilt, you know that your sins are forgiven by God, for you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's wonderful freedom. And uh, Paul talks about that. He says, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting people's sin against Him, and He has given us this wonderful message of reconciliation. You can be right with God, but you can also be right with other people. And I would encourage you to do that. I want to tell you something, that as I went through that list, line by line, person by person, there was not a single person on that list who said, no, I will not forgive you. Every single person, no matter what I had done to them, what sin I had caused, every one of them said, you're forgiven. Free from the guilt of offenses caused by a lifetime of sin. And some live a lifetime with this haunting guilt, and you don't have to. God has called us to be free from our from the guilt of our sins. I think there's a lot of unfinished business between people, perhaps between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between employees and employers, or vice versa, friends, and even enemies. Now, there's a list for you to work on this week, and maybe next week, and the week after. The purpose of this is to bring about reconciliation, and the Lord is really calling us to action to confess and forsake our sin. Well, wait a minute. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not us going and asking forgiveness, although that is another part of Scripture that talks about that. This particular passage actually talks about somebody who has sinned against us. Now, I want to tell you something. Knowing how freeing it is to have guilt removed from me if somebody comes to me and says, Don, I sinned against you, will you forgive me? I had somebody do this to me actually about uh, two months ago. And uh, he said, very apologetically, he said, now I know what I've done against you was wrong. And he said, I know that it's going to take you a long time to think about whether you will forgive me. I said, man, I don't need to think about this. Are you kidding me? You've come to me and you're asking forgiveness? <laughs> it's forgiven and it's forgotten. Okay? It's just, just like that. I want him to experience the same freedom of, from guilt and, and the burden of the guilt that comes with it. And so the Lord is talking to us as believers, as brothers and sisters, and he says, look, if a brother sins against you, what do you do about it? What do you do about it? Well, he tells us. He says, rebuke him. Rebuke the one who has sinned. Um, what does that mean? Well, that means that we're to spell out to him the offense that he has caused against us, the sin that, has, that he's done, what he has done wrong. But I want to just warn you, do it with gentleness. Do it with gentleness. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. 2 Timothy 2 says this, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, 
able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So if our brother or sister sins against us and we go to them with all gentleness and meekness and say, look, what you did was wrong and it hurt me. And here's where it was wrong. Here's why it was sin. And they say, oh, brother, sister, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? What's your response then? Well, I'll think about it. I think sometimes we kind of enjoy the idea of having something against somebody. But that's not our response. Our response should be, it's forgiven and it's forgotten. Isn't that the way the Lord treats us? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when does He do it? Upon confession of sin. Right away. He doesn't hold back. And let me ask you another question because it relates to what we're just about to talk about. How many times do you do that a day to the Lord? More than once? Twice? That's the next part of this verse. And this is probably the hardest part of it. What happens if that same person sins against you the second time in the same day and then comes to you and says, hey, I'm really sorry. I blew it again. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Then you forgive them. Okay, well, what if it's the third time? I mean, come on. Well, then you forgive them again. And the fourth and the fifth, and the sixth. And Jesus says, even if he comes to you seven times and repents, you forgive him seven times. Now, I don't know if it was before or if it was after, chronologically, but this subject came up once more in uh, the disciples' mind. And they sent Peter to go ask the Lord a question because the Lord was talking about this very same thing. And Peter says, Lord, suppose somebody comes and sins against us seven times in a day. Should we forgive them? And the Lord says, I tell you, not seven, but 70 times seven. Seven is the perfect number. It was already complete at seven. But suppose the Lord said, I mean, the Lord said, suppose he comes and he does that 490 times. Well, then forgive him 490 times. Okay, so at 491, we stop, right? (laughs) If you've gone that far, you've taken up the whole day. Then Tuesday will be another day. And he's got 490 more that day. The point is, it's limitless. And that is the whole point of this passage, is that as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, when somebody is asking for forgiveness, administer forgiveness to them. Although there are no limits... There are conditions, and I just want to bring them up to you here. What are the conditions? The person who has sinned must repent and must confess their sin. And that's when you administer the forgiveness to them. And you want to encourage that, don't you? That's why you go and you rebuke your brother to to bring them to the point where they will confess their sin, they will ask forgiveness, and they will have that guilt of their sin removed. We are not built, we are not designed to be load bearers of guilt. We just aren't built that way. 
God didn't design us for that. How are we to respond to someone that asks forgiveness so many times? There was a man who said, you know, when my wife and I argue, she gets historical. And, and his friend said, don't you mean hysterical? He says, no, I mean historical. She brings up everything I've ever done in the past. <laughs> How does God forgive us? Does he keep dragging up, dredging up all the stuff in the past? It's buried. It's forgotten. The distance is immeasurable. And that's how we should be as well. He has promised your sins and iniquities. I will remember no more. So we have a word. Isumagi jujang a niner mik. Isumagi jujang a niner mik. Now I'm not even sure I'm saying it right. So if you're Eskimo, forgive me. When the first Christian missionaries arrived among the Eskimos, they found there was no Eskimo word for forgiveness. And so when they began to translate the Bible into their own language, they took several Eskimo words and pieced them together, and they formed a new word, and that's the word that they formed. It literally means choosing not to think about it anymore. Choosing not to think about it anymore. That's what forgiveness is. I choose. When somebody has asked me, will you forgive me? I forgive you. It's forgiven and it's forgotten. It's a choice that I make. It's a choice that you make not to think about it, not to bring it up anymore. You don't dredge up all this stuff all over again. In 1 Corinthians 13.5, Paul said it a different way. He said, love keeps no record of being wronged. The apostles heard this and they said, Lord, increase our faith. And so the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. I think the disciples realized the impossible nature of forgiving this way and asked the Lord to give them an increase in faith. But even small faith can do amazing things. There is an amazing story that comes out of World War II and I'm going to end with this story. Some of you have read the, the uh, account of Corrie Ten Boom and her family. They were a Dutch family that uh, during World War II as the Nazis were trying to round up all of the Jews and take them to concentration camps, they would uh, hide them and they would try to protect them. And um, it really was an amazing story of faith on their part to do something like that. But their love was rewarded with hatred. And soon they were discovered, what they were doing was discovered, and they too were taken captive. And some of you have read the story about Corrie Ten Boom and her sister Betsy. They were taken to a concentration camp, and uh, they were treated brutally. They were treated with shame and contempt. And I'll let Corrie tell you the story in her own words. She says this, The source of our strength is Jesus Christ himself. And his cross shows us that we can accept suffering as part of God's plan for this world. When I was in the concentration camp, one of the most terrible things I had to go through was that they stripped us of all of our clothing and we had to stand naked. The first time was the worst. I said, Betsy, I cannot bear this. 
And suddenly it was as if I saw Jesus at the cross. And the Bible tells us they took his garments. And I knew. I knew he hanged there for me, for my sins. And in my suffering, I understood a fraction of the sufferings of Christ. And it made me so thankful that I could bear my suffering. Betsy, her sister, died in the concentration camp by the cruel hands of the Nazis. And it left an indelible mark in Corey's life and in her thinking. As World War II came to an end and the world was exposed to the atrocities of the uh, Nazis and what they had done, the concentration camps, Corey emerged from the rubble and the smoke and the death from those camps, a changed woman. She had learned so much about suffering and so much about faith, but God had yet one more lesson in store for Corey. It's a lesson that most of us will never face to this degree in our lives. It was a lesson in forgiveness. Years went by, and Corey was asked to come of all places to Berlin, Germany. And there in Berlin, she was to tell her story. And as she told her story, there was a man that came up to her after she had finished speaking. I'll let you hear her words. It was some time ago that I was in Berlin. And there came a man to me and said, Ah, Mr. Bohm, I am glad to see you. Don't you know me? And suddenly I saw that man that was one of the most cruel officers, guards, in the concentration, concentration camp. And that man said, I have, I'm now a Christian. I have found the Lord Jesus. I read my Bible and I know that there is forgiveness for all the sins of the whole world. Also for my sins. I have forgiveness for the cruelties I have done. But then I have asked God grace for an opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness. And Fräulein Tambom wants him here forgiven. Will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. But when I saw, when I experienced that I could not forgive, suddenly I knew I myself have no forgiveness. Do you know that Jesus has said that? When you do not forgive those who have sinned against you, my heavenly Father will not forgive you your sins. And I, I knew, oh, I'm not ready for Jesus coming because I have no forgiveness for my sins. But I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. And then, I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5.5. 5. The love of God is shed abroad into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And I said, thank you, Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit who is given to me. And thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. 
and I could say, brother, give me your hand, and I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Lord, increase our faith. That's what the disciples said. The only thing keeping us from administering forgiveness to others is our own self-importance and pride. But even that can be uprooted and cast into the sea. We don't need more faith. We need to exercise the faith that God has already given to us. Brothers and sisters, we need to be freed from the guilt of sins that we have committed. But we also need to express that freedom from guilt to others as well. To be free from guilt, to be free from self-loathing, to be free from an offended conscience. When Corey administered forgiveness, if you listen to her words at the end there, she said this, you've never touched so the ocean of God's love as when you forgive. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have called us to a life of discipleship, a life that uh, challenges us to the very core. And Lord, we want to go forth from this day as changed people, as people who want to make a difference in life and in the lives of others. Lord, we pray that we would have consciences void of offense toward God and toward men. And that, Lord, we would be ministers of forgiveness to others as well. We just pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.